The combination of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is obviously the centerpiece of Christianity and the centerpiece of human history. There is no way to overemphasize the importance of what happened those three days. When Jesus was on the cross, God the Father took our sin and placed it on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus not only bore our sin, he became sin. Positionally, he became sin. Then the holy God of the universe righteously punished his own son, the Lord Jesus, for our sin. And since God is holy and righteous, he had to turn away from his own son because Jesus became unholy and unrighteous in his positional standing. In doing so, Jesus paid it all. Therefore, when he was placed in the tomb, he didn't stay there. God brought him back to life. Down through the centuries, people have thought back to those days with utter amazement and awe. Myriads of songs, literally myriads of songs, have been written about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We sing at Calvary, beneath the cross of Jesus. Calvary covers it all. O sacred head now wounded, lead me to Calvary, near the cross, the old rugged cross, when I survey the wondrous cross. We sing words like, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We sing songs like, Because he lives, crown him with many crowns. He is Lord. He lives. He rose triumphantly. Up from the grave he arose. Christ the Lord is risen today. We glory in the truth of the cross and the resurrection. We rejoice in those things because of what they mean to us. But have you ever stopped to think of what Jesus' death and resurrection means to him? We hardly ever think of the cross and the resurrection in that light. As you work your way through the gospel accounts, you can see what the death of Jesus meant to the disciples on that side of the cross. They couldn't grasp it. They couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was going to die. They, they knew in their hearts he was the Messiah, and therefore they couldn't figure out how the Messiah could possibly die and still be the Messiah. To them, that was a contradiction in terms. How could the Messiah be killed if he was to be the ultimate conqueror? It didn't make sense to the disciples. They couldn't see any good whatsoever coming of the death of their beloved rabbi and teacher, so they blocked the whole thing out of their minds. Whenever Jesus tried to broach the subject, whenever he tried to warn them, they just, it's as if they had a mind block. They should have gotten the message. In the Gospel of John chapter 2, Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple of his body. In chapter 3, he told Nicodemus he would be lifted up which in that day was a technical way of referring to crucifixion. In John 6.51, he said he would give his flesh as the bread of life for the world. In chapter 10, he said he would lay down his life as the good shepherd. 
but the disciples never got the message. In fact, I'm not even sure they really grasped what Jesus was saying to them in the upper room discourse of John 13 through 16 on the final Thursday night. They did begin to realize that Jesus was saying he would be leaving them, but I'm not sure they really understood the fact that he was going to die. So from their viewpoint, the death of Jesus was a cause of confusion and fear. From our viewpoint, almost 2,000 years later, the death of Jesus is a cause of rejoicing because of all that it did for us. And from our viewpoint, we see the cross in light of the resurrection. So we rejoice in the resurrection because of what it means to us. But what did Jesus' resurrection mean to him? To begin with, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, the very first book of the New Testament, the first gospel account, chapter 12. And notice what Jesus said about his own resurrection here at this point in his ministry. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. From this passage alone, you can see that Jesus placed a lot of stock in his resurrection. It was the ultimate sign to validate his greatness. Everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus stood for, depended on one thing, his resurrection. So what did the resurrection prove? Why was it so important to Jesus? What did it prove? At least four things. Number one, it proves Jesus willingly gave up his life. Two, it proves Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. Three, it proves that Jesus is the Son of God. And four, it proves that that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Let's look briefly at each of these individually. Number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus willingly gave up his life. Turn from the first gospel to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, chapter 10. From the first gospel account to the final gospel account, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Jesus said, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, referring, of course, to Gentiles, the the believers, the group of believers that was almost exclusively Jewish at this point, but other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. 
I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. The resurrection was proof that Jesus had willingly given up his life. I mean, think about it. If he had remained in the grave, then that would have seemed as if his enemies had been victorious over him. But he burst forth from the grave as proof that he was the victor, not the victim. He was the conqueror and not the conquered. As you well know, many people have laid down their lives for some cause down through the centuries. But no one has ever been able to take up his life again after laying it down. Yet Jesus did. In the context here of John 10, it appears that Jesus spoke these words directly against the Jewish leaders who were standing around. He knew that in just a few months, they would push the Roman authorities to have him murdered. So he wanted to make sure that they knew that he was in sovereign control even of his own death. No one would take his life from him. He would willingly lay it down. He wasn't a helpless victim of his enemies. He wasn't a a victim of their plot. He was the king, and they were simply the pawns on the chessboard of God's plan to redeem mankind. In fact, verse 17 indicates that Jesus placed strong emphasis on his sovereign control by saying, I myself lay down my life. So Jesus spoke these words as a rebuke to his enemies who thought they were going to control him and they were going to get rid of him. But Jesus also spoke these words for his disciples. He wanted to make sure that they knew he wasn't a victim. As I said earlier, the death of Jesus was an overwhelming blow to the disciples. So he wanted to make sure that his little flock wasn't completely devastated by that event. He wanted to prepare them in advance, so he speaks these words for their benefit as well. No one killed Jesus against his will. Yes, Jesus was murdered. He was unjustly murdered, but it wasn't outside of his control. He willingly laid down his life so that he might take it up again in the resurrection, and that proved that he willingly laid down his life. Secondly, number two, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Look at the very next chapter of John's gospel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Jesus said to her, to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. (coughs) Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus proved that in this chapter by raising Lazarus from the dead, but even more so when he was raised from the dead. You see, beloved, think about it this way. If Jesus could do nothing about death, then everything else Jesus said would really be worthless in the end. It would be meaningless because according to 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is man's last enemy. But Jesus conquered death. That's why he could say here, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 
Though he dies physically, he will live spiritually and eternally. The resurrection of Jesus proved he is the resurrection and the life. Thirdly, it proves that he is the Son of God. Turn past the book of Acts, the next book in the New Testament, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now here's the verse. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Here Paul says the resurrection validated Jesus' claims to deity. Throughout his ministry, Jesus continually claimed to be God. Now, there are people today who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, but you would never convince the first century Jews of that. They knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew he claimed to be God, which is why they wanted to kill him on multiple occasions. He claimed to be God in human flesh, and his resurrection, Paul says here in verse 4, proves that he is God. That's what the title Son of God means. It is a title of deity. His resurrection proves he is the Son of God. And then fourthly, his resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Turn over just a few pages to the right to chapter 4 of Romans. Chapter 4, verse 25, speaking of Jesus our Lord, it says, Paul says, who was delivered up because of our offenses. Now we understand that. He, he was given up to the cross or placed on the cross for our sin, but was raised up because of our justification or for our justification. In other words, the resurrection was proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. If God had not accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, then you and I would have to pay for our own sin eternally. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. If Jesus' sacrifice had not been acceptable to God, then we would have to spend eternity in hell paying for our own sin. Of course, there are many people today who don't even believe in hell. So to them, the resurrection of Jesus is meaningless. A while back, there was an article in the magazine U.S. News and World Report. The subtitle said, With fire and brimstone out of fashion, modern thinking says the netherworld isn't so hot after all. It was basically an article denying the reality of eternal hell. When I read st- whenever I read stuff like that, my response is what Paul said here in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Let God be true, but every man a liar. Jesus taught that there is a literal hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he died to deliver men and women from the punishment of hell. His resurrection is proof that God accepted his sacrifice for for sin. But what difference does it make, practically? Sadly, to some people, it makes no difference at all. Their lives aren't any different 
on a practical level as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet, as, as Romans 6.3 says, as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus Christ conquered the grave to give us new life. In fact, those who place faith in Christ are, in a sense, risen with Him. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians. This is a, a really interesting text in Ephesians 2. Beginning in verse 4, Paul says this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now listen to this. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's obviously some type of spiritual union with Christ in his resurrection. When an individual commits his life to Christ, then that person is given new life, resurrection life. And that life is simply received by faith in Jesus Christ. But it's amazing to me how many people come to Easter services like this one year after year, and they don't have new life because they've never personally trusted Jesus Christ. Christ. They're completely void of new life. Now just so there is no confusion as to what new life is, let me mention a few of the most common substitutes people use today. These are, I'll just mention three, common substitutes for new life or resurrection life. Number one, morality. Many people assume that if they lead a good moral life, then they must have resurrection life. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23 to a group of the most religious, moral individuals who have ever lived. Listen to what he had to say about their morality. Matthew 23, I'll read it to you, beginning in verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. You're moral, outwardly. But inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. You're very moral, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men. You're moral, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Please hear me. Morality is not a valid indicator as to whether or not you have resurrection life. Secondly, another common substitution for resurrection life is intellectual assent. Most people, in our culture at least, most people know the story of the cross and resurrection. And many people will assent to that. They will give intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus died and rose again. For example, if this afternoon you were to go around your neighborhood just knocking on doors saying, I'm doing a little poll, do you know, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? My guess is you would get more affirmative answers than negative. People will assent to it. But it's simply a mental assent to certain facts that makes no difference in their lives practically. Reminds me of what James said in James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You believe there is one God? Good for you. 
the demons also believe and tremble. In other words, the demons will assent to the facts about God, but it doesn't change them in any way whatsoever. So intellectual assent is a common substitute in our society for resurrection life. Here's the third one, and probably the most common one. The most common substitution for new life today is religion or religious activity. People assume that because they are religious, because they are involved in religious activity, because they will attend church on Easter Sunday, then that must mean they have resurrection life. But Jesus' words ring loud and clear when in Matthew 7, 21, he said, On judgment day, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord. Now listen as they begin to list their religious credentials. Have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will declare unto them, I never knew you depart from me. Religion damns people to hell faster than anything I know. Please hear me. Religious activity does not indicate new life. So what does? What are valid indicators of new life? What are valid indicators of resurrection life? I'll briefly list three or four this morning, but before I do, I want to emphasize very strongly that these things don't give you new life. They don't give you new life. Resurrection life can't be earned, can't be merited. These are the results of new life that is received by placing faith in Jesus Christ, by receiving him personally. What are some evidences or indicators that you have resurrection life? Number one, love for God. Love for God, love for Christ. Those who have received resurrection life have a strong love for God. Romans 5, 5 says that when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ, the love of God is poured out in our hearts. There's just this love for God that results when new life is present within. 1 John 2, 5 says, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected, and by this we know we are in him. This is how we know, because we have a love for God in us that's not natural. It's not normal. It's been transplanted there. It's been placed there by the Holy Spirit of God. A second evidence of new life is love for other believers. When you are born in the family of God, then you immediately love God's people. Or to say it another way, for the most part, non-Christians don't love the people of God. Oh, there could be a non-Christian who has a Christian friend that he appreciates and respects, but in general, non-Christians don't love the people of God. It's not who they gravitate toward. But when resurrection life is in your heart, you love the people of God. 1 John 3.14 says, We know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Well, how do we know that, John? Because it's not natural. It's not normal that you love the people of God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he that doesn't love does not know God. So if you don't love God, if you don't love his family, then that is an indication that you don't have resurrection life. Again, let me emphasize, you can't get that life by trying to love God, by trying to love the family of God. You get it 
through faith in Jesus Christ. A third indication of new life is spiritual growth. If there is no growth, no fruit, then how can someone claim that there's life? We recently went through the parable of the soils in Mark's gospel. And if you will remember, Jesus in that parable basically said that if the Word of God really takes root, then it will produce fruit. Now, you don't produce fruit to gain new life. You grow as a result of new life that's within. And then fourthly, a fourth indication of new life is obedience to the Word of God. Listen to how the Apostle John stated it in his letter. He says this, Now by this we know that we know Him. That that ought to really get our attention. Well, how can we know, John? I want assurance. How can I know? Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So a fourth indication of new life is obedience to the Word of God, a desire to obey what God has said in His Word. So let me ask you, as you think about those four indicators of new life, do you have resurrection life? Examine your life this morning. Do you have new life? Do you have a love for God? Love for Christ? Love for the people of God? Are you growing spiritually? Do you desire to obey the Word of God? If you don't have resurrection life, then you need to receive Jesus Christ into your life because he is the only person who can give you new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. There's new life within. Well, now that we have established the importance and priority of the resurrection, what kind of practical application comes out of it? There are two applications I want us to consider this morning that are based on the resurrection. One for each of the two groups of individuals in the world. After all, there are only when it's all said and done, there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and they are headed for an eternity in heaven. And there are those who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and they are headed for the judgment of eternal hell. Every one present here today falls into one of those two categories because there's no in-between. So I want to I sort of wind down with two applications, uh, one to believers, one to those here who are not believers. First, let's consider the application for those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To do that, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you have Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This chapter is the resurrection, resurrection chapter of the Bible. In this one chapter alone, the concept of resurrection is spoken of over 20 times. This chapter is all about Christ's resurrection, our resurrection. And at the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul gives us an inspired application based on the doctrine of resurrection. So we don't have to come up with our own. It's nice. Paul gives us an application through the Holy Spirit. And here it is. 1 Corinthians 15, right at the end of the chapter, verse 15. Therefore, 
That is, in light of all that I've said in this chapter about the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection, the reality of resurrection, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's the application, beloved, for us who know Christ. It is, give your life in service to him. If we really believe that God raised up Jesus from the dead, and if we really believe that God will raise us up from the dead to be victorious with him, then we will give ourselves to the cause of Christ. At work, at play, in every facet of life, the resurrection should give us an eternal perspective in, on life so that we value eternal things more than earthly things. The resurrection should give us an eternal perspective on life so that we will take Jesus' word seriously to lay up treasure in heaven. It was Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr, who said, No man is a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is sad how many Christians have bought into the world's way of thinking that says, Hey, you only go around once in life, so grab all you can. Just get all you can out of this life. But Jesus said you go around twice, not just once. First there is this life, and then there is the life hereafter. And the truth of the resurrection should cause us to focus more on the life hereafter than on this present life. That's why here in verse 58, Paul says, Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You're not wasting your time. You're not wasting your effort. God will balance the scales in eternity when we are risen to be with Christ. So that's the application for those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior. Abound in the work of the Lord. Find a way to serve Christ. Find a way to make a difference in life. Don't just sit in the pews on Sunday. Give yourself to the cause of Christ. Then the application to those who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is found in Acts chapter 17. This is the last passage we're going to look at this morning. Go back to the left after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. As we turn to this passage of Scripture, we are jumping into the middle of a section that is telling about the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. As you may know, he took three journeys in all, actually four. His fourth one was to Rome as a prisoner, but three missionary journeys. This is the second one, and we pick up the story when Paul came to the city of Athens. Athens in the first century was very much like the USA today. I mean, if there's, if there's any parallel from the first century to our culture here in the U.S., it's Athens. So Paul comes into that scene, and so this is a great passage because if you've ever wondered what would Paul say if he could be transported to our day and live here in 21st century America, what would his message be? We don't have to guess. This is it. This is what he would say. So we'll pick it up in verse 22 of Acts 17, where Paul is about to speak to a group of men who are assembled on Mars Hill also known as the Areopagus. 
So verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now some translations say religious, some say superstitious. And either is a valid translation. They were religious, but it was, some of it was just superstition. They wanted to kind of cover all the bases, as we'll see in a moment. They even had an altar to an unknown God. They just wanted to make sure they covered it all. So in their superstition, they didn't offend any potential God and get on his bad side. So Paul says, I perceive that you're, you're very religious or you're very superstitious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship... I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made... From one blood, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, now here's Paul's application. He's just been commenting on their style of worship, their style of superstition, and then he brings in the true God who is the creator, the sovereign Lord, and here's his application. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, not, not all children of God, we're all creatures of God. He is our creator. Therefore, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Here's Paul's application. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Notice Paul's application here to society in general, to those who are not submitted to Christ. He basically gives three points of application. Number one, God demands repentance. Number two, Jesus will judge. Number three, the resurrection guarantees that judgment. That's Paul's application. So that's what I want to say to those of you here this morning who have yet to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. God demands repentance. Matthew 4.17 says Jesus came preaching repentance. He followed the example of John the baptizer because Matthew 3.2 says that John the baptizer, the forerunner of Jesus, came preaching repentance. In Luke 24.47, Jesus told his disciples to go and preach repentance. In Acts 3.19, Peter said, repent and be converted so your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 20, 21, Paul said his message was repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 26, 20, Paul said he told, he's, he, he told that the Gentiles should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. It's all over the Bible. God demands repentance. And those who refuse to repent will be judged, and they will be judged by Jesus. For those who, re who refuse to repent and receive Jesus, the resurrection, 
means certain judgment. Jesus died, he arose, and he's coming back as judge. He will bring forth every man to life from the grave, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of damnation. So that's why verse 30 says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen, if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then today God is commanding you to repent. God commands you to change your mind and receive Christ because the resurrection of Jesus means certain judgment if you don't. You see, the resurrection is a fork in the road of decision. You cannot remain neutral when you face the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its reality and its fact in human history. If you haven't chosen to believe the resurrection and follow Jesus Christ, then you've chosen to face the judgment of God. The story is told of a king who ordered his burial to be in a tomb of tremendous granite slabs so that he would not have to come out and face judgment. He knew there was talk of judgment. He knew in his heart there was this idea of future judgment. He didn't want to face it. So he ordered his burial in a tomb of tremendous granite slabs, thinking somehow that would keep him contained and he would never have to face judgment. The years passed by and dust settled in a tiny crevice. In this passing, in this dust, a passing bird or the wind deposited a seed. This seed eventually took root. And as the years passed, a tree developed. Gradually, the crevice widened and more soil settled in until the expanding roots of the tree had completely burst asunder the tomb. Now listen, beloved, if God can use a speck of dust and a little seed to open a tomb, why should we think it impossible that someday the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all creation, will burst asunder every grave and bring every man and every woman to the judgment bar of God. God demands repentance. Jesus will judge. And the resurrection is the guarantee of that. So how can you respond? How might you respond? Interestingly, we are given three different responses right here in this text. Three responses. Unbelief, postponement, and belief. Look at verse 32. Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Come on, Paul. You're not, aren't you enlightened? What do you, what do you mean, resurrection from the dead? What age do you live in? Where do you come from? Some mocked. That's, that's, that's still the most common response today. Most people refuse to believe. Oh, they, they may mentally assent to the resurrection, as we talked about earlier, but, but they don't believe in the sense that it changes their lives. They mock. They trivialize the resurrection. That's just a religious doctrine. It's not something that should be brought into the you know, public discussion. You've got to keep it out of public school. You've got to keep it out of government. You've got to keep it out of life. Just keep it boxed in somewhere. It's just mockery of the resurrection. Unbelief is the most common response, but not the only response. Verse 32 continues, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. A second possible response is postponement. I'll, I'll think about that later. I'll give my life to Jesus 
before I die. I'll consider my eternal destiny when I'm older, not now, later. Postponement is a common response to the claims of Jesus, but postponement is usually nothing more than an excuse to mask unbelief. Then there's a third possible response. Look at verse 34. However, some men joined him and believed. That's the right response. Some said, Paul, we're with you. We believe this. We believe this is true. And we give our lives to it. No one has to face the judgment of God, beloved. Because Jesus Christ has taken the judgment of God for us when he died as our substitute on the cross. And now he offers eternal life as a free gift to those who will receive his resurrection life. Will you do that this morning? Right now, where you are seated, will you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and ask him to give you resurrection life? I urge you to do that as we close our service together in prayer. Bow your head with me, please. So of these three responses right here in Acts 17, which, which of these categories do you fit in today? Unbelief, maybe even mockery, a mockery kind of unbelief, or postponement. Well, you know, that's, maybe there's something to this. I'll think about it later, down the road. Or genuine faith, belief. Yes, I'm all in. I believe this wholeheartedly. Which category are you in? I urge you this morning, do not leave this place without resurrection life. Respond to the offer of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and new life. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to proclaim the resurrection this morning to celebrate the resurrection, to affirm it, to hold to it, regardless of what our world says, regardless of the temperature or the climate, the flow of our day and age, we wholeheartedly believe and affirm that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he did that not merely to be a historical fact, but he did that to give us new life, to give us resurrection life. So, Father, those of us who have received Christ by faith and have resurrection life, we give you great and immense thanks this morning for raising us from the dead spiritually and giving us this new life in Christ. But surely, as we, even as we pray this, undoubtedly, in a crowd this size, there are those present with us this morning who do not have new life. They do not have resurrection life. They've come here this morning for whatever reason, but they don't have the life of Christ pulsating through their heart and soul. Oh, how we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction to their hearts, that they would repent, as Paul says here in Acts 17, that they would repent, turn from self, turn from sin, let go of whatever is holding them back, and turn to Jesus Christ in true faith and surrender and experience his resurrection life. Father, may you be pleased to accomplish that in the hearts and lives of those hearing these words who do not know Christ. 
And we thank you for the promise that because he lives, we shall live also. That he has conquered the last enemy, death. That enemy that affects all of us. Should the Lord Jesus tarry, all of us will die. And all of us have already been affected by it because we've lost friends and loved ones to death, the last enemy. But thank you that Jesus has conquered. And those of us who are in him will conquer death also for all eternity. We rejoice in this as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.